Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Uh, we are continuing in on our Genesis series. We're covering two whole chapters today, so watch out. That, that, those felt like sarcastic laughs, <laughs> which is fine. That's fair. I've earned that at this point. Um, yeah, we're going to go through chapters two and three. We did get into chapter two just a little bit last week, talking about the Sabbath. It was good to slow down and take our time talking about the Sabbath. Um, But Genesis 2 and 3 is a unit that I'm more convinced than ever is important to take together. Genesis 2 and 3 together. There has been plenty of attention paid to Genesis 3, the the story of the fall, as it is known to many. Um, But when we let that story stand in isolation, we miss a bigger Point, and we miss a bigger picture that God um, is trying to work in the world and intending to work in us. So we're going to take this larger chunk today. We won't read, read it in its entirety, but we'll read uh, a good portion of it. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4 through 25, through the rest of the chapter, is God painting the perfect picture. is painting a picture of a paradise, so to speak. Uh, and there are lots of questions here uh, about like why, why do we get like a second account of creation? We already went through Genesis 1, and then we get to Genesis 2-4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And we're like, well, why, didn't we just get that? Uh, why would we have another? And there's, there's a handful of clues here um, to indicate that Genesis 2 is not really like a recapitulation. It's not just a mere rehash of Genesis 1. If we were thinking in terms of movie, this is more of like a sequel. I think a better illustration might be like if this was a TV series, this is more of a spinoff off of a specific scene from uh, a TV series. This is a, a new series altogether. And one of the clues in that direction, is the very first phrase, this is the account, or in Hebrew, ele toledot, or these are the generations. Your, your English translation will deal with it in a number of different ways. This phrase uh, is used all throughout the book of Genesis to say, all right, we're starting a new segment of this narrative. We're starting a new portion of this story. Uh, We get it from Cain to Seth, around the story of Babel, around the story of Abraham and his descendants, and then finally with the story of Joseph. If you're a total nerd and want to know where all of those are, it's 5, 1, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, 6, verse 9, 10, verse 1, 11, verse 10, 11, verse 27, 25, verse 12, 25, verse 19, 36, 1, 36, 9, 37, Two, on the off chance that you are as weird as me. 
But a handful of times we get this phrase to say, hey, here's a new part of the story. So we could think of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 as this initial, like, here's how God created. And we looked at all the beauty and detail that was a part of that story. And now in 2, 4, it's almost like the narrator goes, now let's start the story. Now, here we go. And here's what happens is we get this picture of beauty and life, a garden. And not just any garden, but a garden filled with beautiful trees, trees in the ancient world, and even now, to an extent, being symbolic of life, of a source of life and a source of righteousness. It's used like that throughout the Old Testament as well. Speaking of a source of life, there's this headwaters of four different rivers as well. The, the scene is teeming with life at every, at every point. It's life here, life there, life everywhere. God has formed his perfect world and, and it's lush and it's beautiful. I was, as I was thinking about this scene this week, I, of all things that came to mind, I've seen so many like beautiful scenes out in like actual nature, but what came to mind was Timon and Pumbaa and Simba singing Hakuna Matata, like swinging through the jungle with waterfalls flowing, flowing down and whatnot. It's just lush and beautiful and carefree. And in the midst of this life-giving story, there is a very clear directive. This is what humanity is for. If we drop down in chapter 2 to verse 15, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. I love that, by the way. It just sort of like, a, I feel like God just kind of grabs him by the head and just is like, here, I made this nice garden for you. And it just like plops him there. Like, it's, it's not that God told the man to go there or like made him there. He just like put him there. I just, there's something about that image that makes me laugh. He put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Three crucial elements of the human project in these couple of verses here. We've got vocation, what mankind is put here to do. We have vocation, calling, if you want to use it that way. We have a prohibition. Well, first we have a permission, you're free. And then a prohibition, don't do that. First, vocation. This should sound a whole lot like chapter 1, verse 28, which reads, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. In chapter 2, Adam is there, or the man is put there in the garden to work it and to take care of it. This is a fulfillment of, of the calling to go and steward that which is right in front of you well. Be faithful with the stuff that is in front of you today. The calling of God is, not, is no more complicated than that. It is plenty complicated to do that, for sure. The elements of our lives make 
being faithful with what's right in front of us, remarkably complex and difficult, but it's not fancier than that. We get caught up sometimes in this question of what is the will of God for my life? And there, there's a good heart behind that for sure. But there's also a clear directive from the very beginning. Be faithful with the thing that's right in front of you and you will be fulfilling the will of God. The other stuff will fall into place. Sometimes it feels more like falling, but it will, it will indeed fall into place. There is vocation. There is goodness to the work that God has called us to do. And then there is beautiful permission. The Lord God commanded the man. In chapter one, interesting note here, when God commands stuff, he never actually says, the word command is not actually used. It says he blesses it and, and then gives the command. We have a shift here. It's a new account. The, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. This good and beautiful and lush and vibrant world that God has put the man into, God says, go enjoy, partake, engage. God is so clear. He said, I have put it here for you to be blessed by it. Genesis 1 is full of blessing. And Genesis 2 is supposed to be living into that blessing. There's permission. There's not, and not just permission, but an invitation to the full life, like goodness that God has poured into this world. And God says, I put it there for you. I put it there for you to enjoy so that when you enjoy it, you will know that I am the one who put it there for you. I, I just, I have to say like, in teaching through this book uh, at, at Bushnell right now, and in preparing for these sermons, I this is a portion of scripture I've spent a whole lot of time in before, like up until this point. But I have been blown away time and time again as I have been preparing afresh for for these sermons and for for lessons. Just how eager God is to move towards us, and God is to show us His goodness. That is what is embedded into this world that he has created for us. That is part of the project. This beautiful permission. But no permission is genuine without a boundary. Right? And so, following the permission comes the prohibition. If permission comes without a boundary, it is no permission at all. It is just a blank slate. And it could be good, it could be bad, it could be neutral. God says, no, I want good for you, but that good is going to be made that much better because it comes within a specific context. And that context is this, you must not eat from the tree, the one tree, of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And we should like log that little phrase away for later in this chapter. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's plenty of questions around like what exactly is the tree of the knowledge of, of 
good and evil, and, and there's plenty of debate about the exact nature of this prohibition here, but w- what it gets down to at its core is for mankind to reach out at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is to grasp at a wisdom, at a wisdom that ought not be ours. Something that does not belong to us. We have a hard time um, conceiving of this because to us, like, information is power. The more that we know, the better off we are. The wiser we are. Like, should, should, isn't, wisdom is a, is a good virtue in Scripture. Like, why would we not want more of that? And there is this important nuance here that God says, I want you to refrain from that tree because in doing so, you're saying you trust that which I have given to you. To trust that what you know, what you have been given from me is enough. And this is very hard because we like more information. It makes us feel Uh, more secure. It makes us feel safer, no doubt. It makes us feel, it makes us feel better. And yet we can obsess over it to an extent that is not good for us. And God says, will you trust that what I have invited you to know on your own, will you trust that this whole world of knowledge of good and evil, that that is okay for just me, just God to know? Will you trust that, that it's gonna be there, but that you don't have to indulge? It's a matter, it's, a, it's an invitation to faith in the same way that Sabbath is an invitation to faith as well. It's a matter of trusting that what God allows is enough. Can we do that? The next, so vocation, permission, prohibition. Those are the three essential like aspects of this human project. And then we get a new element introduced to the story. Nothing has gone wrong yet, but look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. This is new, right? We haven't had a not good yet. Everything's been good. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God's like, I gave gave men a, a job to do. And I'm not going to say you're doing a bad job, (laughs) but I'm just going to say it's not good for man to be alone. (laughs) It's, and all God's people said, yeah, we know. (laughs) Bible is funny. (laughs) It is not good for man to be alone. It, it ain't happening. The vocation, it's fine. It's just, it's just not what it could be. You know, the, the garden, it's good, but it, yeah, it could be better. It could be better. I, I will make a helper suitable for him. And then Adam, or, or the man here, has what I have to think is one of the coolest experiences in all of 
history. I, I hope that in eternity future that there is some, like, some sort of like VR set, setup, some virtual reality setup that I can put the goggles on and see what it was like for Adam in this moment. Verse, verse 19, the Lord God had formed all out of the ground, all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all of the wild animals. Every single one comes by Adam. Like that, that is awesome. I like to think about how beautiful that day was. And yet, it turns out in that, in that program, God was trying to find some, something that could help the man. But for Adam, no suitable, suitable helper was found. It's like Adam came back at the end of the day and was like, I really liked the beavers, but they were like all work, no play. It wouldn't work. And, and I liked the deer. Like they were friendly, but they were a little disorganized. And like, I just, I can't have, have that. Like we tried to find a helper and it just didn't work. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep and he creates woman. Helper, helper used a couple times here. And to some uh, who bring a particular view of um, the Bible and, uh, and people to this text, some would use this to say, so here is man and here is woman as helper. Less than someone just allowed to just be like a little helpmate, uh, which is wrong. Not, not what the text is saying. Ezer, the Hebrew word, is the same word that is used of God multiple times throughout the Old Testament to, to describe God's role pertaining to Israel. It is an indispensable helpmate, an invaluable piece of one's life, without which the created order, which is good and beautiful, is actually not good. It's not full. It's not complete yet. The perfect picture has not yet been painted until woman is on the scene. Gotta have both. It is equality of roles that is emphasized here. Don't make it say something that it's not saying. <sighs> I've had some conversations about that in the past. <laughs> I, I, I maybe I'm working something out. I'll, <laughs> I'll take a drink of water. I'm, I'm working through it. Thanks for letting me work through that up here. <laughs> Man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. And he's united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It is the perfect picture. And for a moment, and we don't know how many moments, what's the gap between 225 and 3-1? I don't know. I like to think that it could have been years, right? They felt it. They lived in that beautiful tension of permission and prohibition and vocation. They lived the life that God had invited them to, and it was perfect. 
And chapter three is sad. It, it introduces a new element to the story. Um, but it is not decisive. It is not the end of the story. If chapter two is God painting the perfect picture, chapter three is a fractured frame. The glass shatters. The picture is still perfect. The picture has not changed. But forever our view of the picture will be broken in a way. We will not see it as it ought to be. How do we get there? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Ancient Near Eastern myths like to have uh, a chaos creature, something that comes in and disturbs the peace, something that reorders and otherwise disorders an otherwise orderly scene. And here with the serpent, we have our chaos introduced. Any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? A seemingly benign question, but not so much. It's a, it's a perfect picture of the, the nature of deception, right? Did God really say, sowing the slightest seed of doubt, did God really say? As we pay attention to this little dialogue here between the serpent and between, um, between the woman, um, I'd encourage us to think about that which the serpent is saying as... Um, perhaps our inner monologue sometimes. It is easy enough to put this stuff in the mouth of a, of a serpent in a story that is from long ago, but um, the number one agent who is responsible for our deception is often us, in the, the, way, in the stories that we tell ourselves, right? So let's think about it in that in that sense. Did God really say, eating away at the true and good and beautiful world that God had put there? No dissatisfaction in that scene at all. But did God really say? Notice God is just some distant character here, not the main one engaged, not the main one speaking, not the main one doing. The serpent comes on the scene and puts God in this like third person character, oh, an idea over there. And when God is an idea over there, things start to unravel. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. What did he do? He changed, changed the question. That's not what God said. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. That's the exact opposite of what God said. That was the permission. Eat from anything except this one. He sows seeds of doubt. He twists that which is true. And here's the woman's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The best way to combat a lie is just with the truth. We may. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. 
you must not touch it or you will die. And it was so close to being right. This was so close to being right, but often the answers that are very close to being right are some of the most dangerous for us. Not quite the full picture. You must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. That part is true. And you must not touch it. Here's the thing about the permission-prohibition relationship is that we are often tempted to make too much of one or the other. Uh, on the permission side, we like to say, well, did God really say? And I like to push the boundaries and think, well, it's probably fine if I fill in the blank. In our liberty-obsessed society, we really like to push the permission conversation, the permission idea. But on the other side, there's this prohibition piece. And I mean, we looked at it, uh, we looked at it a couple months ago, uh, how from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus, the, the number of commands grows, and we actually like more commands because we don't have to think about stuff sometimes. Um, we like to add pieces in our mind to make sense of, of a God-oriented directive. Something that, something that could only come from God, could only make sense coming from God. And we don't like to trust that it's enough. We don't like to trust that it's good enough for us or safe enough for us. Would it have been better for Adam and Eve to not touch the tree from which they were supposed to take? Sure. Was that part of the specific directive? No, it wasn't. God never said you can't touch it. Would it have been smart to not touch? Sure. But God did not say that. But we like to add to. We like our extra rules because they give us a little bit, a little bit narrower, actually, a little bit narrower scope. And we can operate more safely within a narrower scope. And Eve is so close, so close to being right here, but not Verse four, you will not certainly die. The serpent's gone from sowing seeds of doubt to planting a little um, untruth to now outright lying. You won't die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll have a wisdom that you will never actually end up wanting. But it sounds appealing. It sounds so, so appealing. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Uh, it interestingly enough, it's, it's virtually the same formula that is used in 1 John 2, 16, when the Apostle John is talking about um, the ways that we fall in with the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the way John took it. A lot of, 
a lot of years between those two verses, a lot of years between John and us, uh, same human condition. That which is appealing to the eye, that which is appealing to the flesh, our desires, and then the pride of life, always wanting a little more for me. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And there's, there's plenty of questions here in this whole scene. Like, had Adam and Eve, had Adam not like fully relayed the message or something? Uh, there are plenty of people who ask that. And to naturally assume that there was a miscommunication in the marriage, like, that's probably fair. Like, that, like we, we got a married couple. Like, we did some, where there's there some breakdown there? Uh, I mean, sure, maybe. Uh, but I don't think that's what, what is going on. On there, I think Eve knew full well what she was doing, and so did Adam, who said, "Nada." The whole time, she also gave some to her husband, who was with there, who was with her, and we ought to go. <gasps> like one of us, yes, yeah, one of us can make a mistake on our own, sure, but two people there together knowing the truth, knowing the goodness that they had been living in, choose to go, meh, looks like a nice apple. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A human attempt at, at covering up the shame induced by this now broken state. And we're fully aware of the ways that we do this to this day. It's necessary. We have our ways of coping and covering. But this perfect picture, the glass is now shattered. The frame is now a little bit fractured. And, and it will never look the same again. It's little more than taking matters into our own hands, right? To, to just like untrust, to distrust that which God has made good for us. And to say, I'm going to secure a little more ease or a little more comfort or a little bit better future for myself. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to meet my need. I'm going to do that which is good for me. It's a taking into our own hands that which God has asked us to leave open-handed. To say trust that I can fulfill that desire and that you don't have to strain at it on your own. It's a taking matters into our own hands. And the wild thing about God is that there is a verse eight. Chapter two, verse 17. Let's quick refresh. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly 
Adam and Eve signed their own death warrant. There shouldn't be anything past verse 6 or 7. And yet, here it comes. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word cool there is actually wind. And when God walks around in a wind, it usually means there's like a storm. It it sounds like God is showing up in a thunderstorm here in the original language. It's just kind of awesome to me. So they, they heard God showing up immediately. Adam and Eve Plunder, like they blundered the whole thing and immediately God is moving towards. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the, called to the man, where are you? This is astounding, right? This is not the voice of God that we often play in our heads. We miss the mark, and boy, we miss the mark. And we are inclined to often towards God as accuser. What did you do? How could you have? Accusatory, shame-inducing response, anger, like all of those things, all of those things that we do when we are hurt, all of those things that, that we respond as uh, we don't find here with God. Instead, we find the God who asks questions, kind questions. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? How disarming, right? Is God looking for information here? No, not so much. When God asks questions, he's not not looking for new info. He's doing something for us. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Instead of, oh, now you know, I told you so. I told you if you take from that tree. None of that. Instead, who told you? Tell me more about that. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knows exactly what has happened, but is inviting Adam into relationship. It's unreal. The man said in a truly courageous moment, (laughs) the the woman, good work, man. Didn't say anything in the first place. And now the woman, now the blame came. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And after the world's like biggest eye roll from God, I have to imagine. <laughs> oh God. Lord God said to the woman, he turns to her and he says, what gives? What is this you have done? And the woman Continuing on the blame game train. Uh, said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And now the questions stop. God has moved towards humanity. We know from everything up to this point in the story that God is so interested in relationship with us that, that even when we screw it up, even when we break that which, has, that which God made perfect in the first 
in the first place. Even then, God moves toward with questions and grace and, and, and an opportunity for conversation. And then the moment that the conversation is no longer with a human, the questions are out the door. He says to the serpent, <coughs> because you have done this, curse are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between you and your offspring, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And now there is the, the game plan for the rest of scripture. Everything else is going to play out from this point forward. Are you going to follow the way of the serpent or are you going to follow the way of this God who wants good for you? But there will always be a struggle to, to lean into that which is good. There will always be. That will never go away. And it starts right here. And then to the woman, he says, I will make... <clears throat> I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Notice a couple things here. One, that the curse for both the woman and the man that we're about to see is related to vocation, related to being faithful with that thing that's put in front of us as our duty. The curse is in the realm of vocation. And also, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There will forever be a power struggle between people, between the genders, yes, but between people just in general. This is the same, uh, the same pair of verbs that's used over in chapter 4 about sin. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In the same way that sin seeks to over power our lives. There will forever be a, between one person and another, this struggle for power. This tension will never, ever go away. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat, um, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. The reason your nine to five is like not very enjoyable sometimes right here. Verse 17, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat plants of the field. The reason we get like scratches from thorns when we're pulling weeds, this right here, verse 18, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. They should have died, right? The story should have been over. Instead, we find a God... It, we find a situation in which it's not that there aren't consequences. There are, they're, and they're dire, and you and I are feeling them to this day. There was a prohibition there. There was a boundary there for a reason, and they stepped outside of it, and now look what happened. It could have been, and then it wasn't. It could have been, and then it wasn't. And, and instead of hitting the reset button, God is too interested in these people he's made. 
He's too interested in relationship with them. And it culminates in this beautiful little verse. Chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. They had already tried this, right? Some fig leaves. Wasn't quite getting the job done. And for the first time in scripture, we see blood shed to atone for, to cover the sin of another. And it, it sets us up for the rest of the story, right? And we ought to be shocked that there is a rest of the story. And yet there is a rest of the story because God will not give up on his people. He will pursue and pursue and pursue. And we will run and we will harden our hearts and we will fill our minds and we will do everything we can to have our way to take matters into our own hands. But God at every step of the way is going to move then back towards us. It is the story of scripture and it makes no sense at all. That is the grace of God. We looked at how Genesis one is a gospel proclamation of grace, God moving towards that which he has created. And that posture, even though the situation has changed, even though the perfect picture is now behind a broken glass, God's posture of heart has not changed. And it has not changed to this very day. God's disposition towards you is one of asking the friendly question, not the accusatory tone. It is one of grace, not of anger. It is one of delight, not disappointment. That is how God approaches us. So I, I want us to, to just think about a couple of questions as we, as we close out today. When we, we need to to think back to the perfect picture that God painted and think about how things went wrong for Adam and Eve and start to think about the areas in our lives that we are holding on to too tightly, the things that we are taking into our own hands rather than holding with open hands. Where, where's the stuff where, our, where, where the open hand has become a clenched fist, where in general trust in God has evaporated and I'm trying to do it my own way. I'm trying to eke it out. I'm just trying to make it happen on my own. What are those areas that instead of having open hands, we have started to take into our own hands? That's an important thing to think about, for sure. An important point of reflection. But also this in what circumstance in your life right now?
do you need to be reminded that God is graciously on the move towards you? We have these parts of our lives that we, um, that we don't want to give up or that we want, want to be off limits to God because we're, we're scared of, of what might happen. Do you know that in that moment that God is on the move towards you? There are things from our past, there are things that we've done, things that we've said that to us seem unforgivable impossible to come back from. There is no impossible to come back from with God. God, in his deep grace, in his deep mercy, in his unrelenting, unreasonable love, will forever be on the move towards you. That is the message. And so we ought to be so, like, sober-minded this ought to be a very sobering passage for us. So sad to see the, the perfect picture with the broken frame now. It is sobering. It is sad. And we should be reflective about that. But we must not let this lead to despair. Because even in this darkest chapter, there is God moving towards. There is God moving towards. And the story will get worse and the story will get better. Uh, worship team, why don't you come on up? I'm going to have a prayer team over here. If you feel something stirring, feel God speaking to you on, on, in some way, um, come, sh- come share with the prayer team if you want somebody to, to, to talk with, to pray through these things. We're going we're gonna to sing. And, and as we do, I, I encourage you to just like open the hands a little bit. To open the hands and say, God, I've been trying to take this thing into my, my own hands and it's not working. And I want to I wanna hold it with open hands for you. And with those open hands, I want to receive your grace. I want to believe that you are on the move towards me. Jesus, um, we, um, we live in light uh, of these chapters that we've looked at this morning. We live in the world created by them, but more importantly, we live in the world created by you. And you, in your grace, created this good and beautiful place for us to live in and enjoy and worship you. Um, And there's stuff that just gets in the way of that sometimes. So Lord, could could you be gracious enough to reveal those things to us, that which we let get in the way? May we have boldness to come to you and know that you are always coming to us. Jesus' name.